from Paperfoot Productions. I'm acclaimed author Nick Brownlee, and this is Brownlee and Brownlee. Hang on. What about me? Oh, yeah. Uh, sorry, Gordon. Gordon, sorry, could you, could you do that again, please? Okay. From Paperfoot Productions, I'm acclaimed author Nick Brownlee. This is my little sister, and this is... Hang on. What, man? Gordon, if you don't mind... From Paperfoot Productions, he's acclaimed author Nick Brownlee, I'm best-selling author Lucy Brownlee, PhD in creative writing, and uh, this is Brownlee and Brownlee's Unsung Book Club. Yes! Yes. Well, Happy New Year to you. Happy New Year to you. Did you have a good one? I did. Have you... uh... what, What did you do? What did I do? Yeah. Well, I was with you. You knew what I did. I know, but I didn't really see much of you, I have to say. I mean, face down on the sofa, you were. (laughs) Yeah. Have you made any resolutions? Uh, Well, I guess it's the usual thing, really. It's uh, when you get to my age. It was actually, you wouldn't know, it was my birthday in December. Was it? Yeah, it was, yeah. And thanks not for the present. Well. Or the card. Mm. Um, But yeah, it was, I guess, when you get to my age, you kind of look back on life and you think, well, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to, uh, you know, give up the booze, give up the fags, give up the loose women, um, take up uh, gym membership. Yeah. Bikram yoga. Right. Uh, maybe go vegan. Not quite sure about that. But, uh, yes. You know, the, 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 the things, the things that people do, just, yeah. to, just to prolong my life as long as I can. Um, but right. what, what, what about you? Well, my New Year's resolution is to shine a light on all those unsung authors out there who deserve a chance to be seen and heard through the medium of this new fortnightly podcast. Well, obviously, that was, that was you my... You see, um, this I... podcast, the Unsung Book Club, is a unique chance for writers of all genres to showcase their work. How do they do it? Well, in each episode, we'll be featuring unsung authors, hearing at first hand about their writing careers to date and listening to exclusive extracts from their latest books. Have you finished? No, because over the next few months we'll also be talking to agents, publishers, bloggers and generally attempting to lift the lid on the mysteries of the book world. Right, now I'm finished. You know, you always were insufferably smug. Well, I suppose the big question our listeners are asking right now is um, who the hell are they and what the hell do they know about anything anyway? That's a reasonable question. What, do you want to go first? Not really. Heads or tails? Heads. Yeah, my uh, my sister Lucy, um, I've known her for, I guess, 40, 40 odd years. She was always, uh, you know, always thought that I was probably the greatest thing that ever lived, but uh, I was amazed when she decided that she was going to follow in my career as a writer, which she did with her book, Wife After Life, I think it was called, uh, but uh, she, she basically, um, yeah, it kind of did very well, and um, it ended up being on the bestseller lists of the Sunday Times, which I was, I was okay about. And then uh, she she kind of ended up on um, Richard and Judy's show as well, and the book was you know well publicised there, which I was fine about too. And um, then I heard that they were making the book possibly into a TV series and a film, which I, I really couldn't take. And at which point I uh, I haven't spoken to her for about three three years. He worked at the Evening Chronicle in Newcastle. Went to Fleet Street, wrote a few thrillers. That's it. 
You often talk about when you got that letter through from the agent and your book had been accepted and that kind of moment of euphoria. What what was that like? Well, as, as usual, you've got it wrong. Um, what happened was that I, I sent my book off, my initial manuscript, to a competition which was run by Macmillan. Ah. Uh, you see. And um, the book was selected from, I, I guess, probably about four million uh, submissions. Is, is that actual evidential or...? It, it is in my mind. Right. Um, so around the world, various authors had submitted uh, novels and mine was selected to be the one that they were going to publish. But unfortunately, they were going to publish it for nothing. Yeah. And I would get no money out of it. But at that point, I was uh, approached by an agent um, called Jane Gregory, who said, don't do that, do this. And she took me on. And from that moment on, my books sailed off the shelves. How long did you wait for that moment? Uh, well, I must have. Well, it was ten years ago, so I was, uh, I guess, twenty-five, eighteen. Yeah. <laughs> no, no, I was, I was forty actually. But I'd, I'd been, um, been writing for many years, uh, scribbling away. Or when I was uh, working as a journalist, every waking minute, I, when I wasn't writing about courts stories or murders, I was at my laptop writing stuff. And uh, I guess it was, uh, if you hang around long enough. It works out for you. You see, I remember, uh, you know, you talk about, you kind of joke about you being my inspiration, but in a sense you were, because I remember coming to you on one of your very first Evening Chronicle scoops. Yes. You invited me along and you said, come on, kid, I'm going to show you how this is done. We went to Corbridge, which is a small town in Northumberland, investigating the outrage of a massive extractor fan at the back of a Indian restaurant, which was causing the residents some consternation and we had to photograph that and you had to go and kind of report on it and I remember thinking at that moment this man's my literary hero (laughs) yes but do you know what the headline on that story was what was it residents are kicking up a stink about an oh uh, superb tell you what did did you see what they did there yeah 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 well those are the the glory days of uh, Mm. newspapers Uh, but what about you I mean I know that uh to talk about your writing career has to unfortunately encompass the fact uh, of what happened. Do you want to explain that in your own words? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, I, again, I'm like you, I've always kind of been scribbling away in the background, but I was always into the impression that it was you that was the writer. I was never allowed to believe that it was me. Um, And uh, after my husband died uh, in 2012, I kind of turned to writing as a way of you know, a therapeutic tool. um, Hang on, what were you going to do had he not died, I had a book that had uh, that was with an agent at the time. Right, and what was the book? It was called Action Carried Forward, and it was about my experiences working within Gateshead Borough Council. That sounds absolutely fascinating. It was, it was, <laughs> it was. Uh, yeah, yeah, my day to day life there, which I, you wouldn't believe what goes on in borough councils, by the way. No, and I actually I can't believe it, and I wouldn't actually want to read about it either. But well, um, that's good. But uh, having said that, yeah, good. So, um, but. Uh, Mark, your your husband's death uh, obviously changed your trajectory. It did. Um, and, and how did you sort of deal with that? And, and how did the writing change from there? I remember saying to you, it got. I started writing a blog and the blog got, uh, a, you know, a lot of uh, good feedback, some bad feedback, but it got some overwhelmingly good feedback and was picked up by uh, Virgin Books, a very spirited editor at Virgin Books uh, by the name of Kate Moore who I'm still in contact with and it's just fab. And um, I remember when it first came out saying to you, I'm frightened. 
yeah. because it was out there and it was I, I kind of hadn't realized what it was going to feel like to be a published author and it was uh, you know what the, the blog itself was that um was that therapy for you or was it you know I, I want to write or why did you start writing it oh it was definitely therapy yeah it was my counselor had said to me you know you you're a writer why don't you write so I did and uh it, it's you know definitely helped with my uh grief process can you remember the first paragraph that you wrote on that blog how did you start it it was something in reference to pac-man and about how little bombs might explode if i wrote i don't know it wasn't terribly insightful that's good and did you did you sort of use the blog as as a basis for the for the book that subsequently yes. arrived right? yes the blog was the basis yeah and and how did the blog turn into the book uh i uh who 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 said to you, um, Lucy? I like your blog. Let's turn it into. A well, it was my agent. I had an agent at the time, Jemima. Um, who's did, still how, my agent? How did you get involved with her? Well, she and I both did the uh, masters. Uh, did a masters at uh, university, and we met on the course. And she was actually a very good writer herself, but she decided to go into the uh, into the world of agenting and had kind of obviously spied me as somebody that she wanted to work with. Thank goodness. And um, the rest is history. Um, so yeah. And what happened then? So the, you wrote the book. How long did that take you? Six months, believe it or not. Right. Which is... Uh, actually, it was probably less than that. It was probably three months from... Uh, well, that's a lot less than six months. I know it is. I've just completely fabricated that, haven't I? Yeah, in fact, I think your whole career is a fabrication. It is. I'm just not who I say I am. So um, after three months, you'd written the book. Yeah. What uh, actually, it was three weeks, but anyway. Oh, sorry. Um, <laughs> three days. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um Three days after having written the book, um, it was, uh, yeah, and it, you know, it had the big publicity machine behind it of uh, Penguin Random House. And I kind of probably didn't realise at the time how, what an what a advantage that was, you know, and I kind of suddenly found myself sitting, being, uh, you know, being driven around with publicists and uh, things like that and uh, going down to London on... Do you think, can I ask this, because I know you, do you think that the, the book was as popular and as successful as it was because it was it coincided with the grief memoir craze that was kind of going around at that time? Or did you start the grief memoir craze that was going around that time? Well, I like to think the latter, but uh, I think the thing about my memoir is that it was, uh, you know, it was kind of gallows. I think that's the word I use about it. And that's kind of, you know, grief is a, still a massive taboo and we don't like talking about uh, the hilarity of... Um, of uh, funeral directors arriving who have chronic haliotosis and uh, you know just need to get on to the next job, which uh, I've always seen. As you know, we have always seen the humour in life, and yeah. uh, we uh, that was kind of I think that's what set it apart from uh, from other mis mems. But the, the, you mentioned mis mems, and that mm. that was kind of a craze at the time. Mm. I have to say, and I don't you know, I, I don't mean that in any flippant way, but um, yours was quite different from from the Ms. Mems that were going around as well. So you, you saw the humour in it. Mm. Um, Which and, is what I've just said. Yeah, cheers. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me about, uh, you know, your first experience, because you were published by Piatkus, which I, is a, I, you know... I thought you'd never ask. Um, well, yes, I was. And what happened was that uh, I was always writing when I was working and uh, I just, I wanted to write crime thrillers because I thought crime thrillers 
were the way to riches. And I'm a professional writer by trade. I'm a freelance journalist. And I don't see any point in writing just for the sake of it, which may be uh, sacrilege to a lot of people out there. But um, I thought... Well, to me as well. Well, yes. But I thought what I'm going to do is I shall write a book which will make me a million pounds. Um, But I thought the best way to do it was to write a crime book. But crime is a very saturated market these days. Crime doesn't pay. Well, it does if you get it right. The thing about crime fiction is that um, you have to have a detective. And the detective, I don't know why, but the tradition seems to be that he's got to be uh, dysfunctional. He's got to be divorced or alcoholic or, or whatever he's got to be. And I just thought, well, do you know what? There's so many of them out there. There's no way I'm ever going to get noticed. So, um, and it, it so happened that um, we were, my wife and I, my wife, and I were um, <laughs> invited out to a wedding in Kenya and we flew into Mombasa airport and we jumped into a taxi, into a minibus and drove up the main road from Mombasa to Malindi in the north. And we got about uh, three miles down the road and there was a huge traffic jam, which went on for miles and miles and miles. Are you still with me? Sorry, what? Are you still with me? Yeah. Right. So we're on this road in Mombasa. There's a huge traffic jam. And eventually we get to the cause of the traffic jam, which is that somebody has been knocked down and killed. And the, the body is lying there sort of flattened on the... On Requiring the... of a detective. No. Oh, okay, sorry. I'm getting to that bit. There's a banana leaf over this chap's face and he's, he's dead. Anyway, but nobody's doing anything. Just people are staring at, at, at the body. And I asked the... Uh, I asked the driver of the minibus, I said, why is this man just lying here? Why haven't the police been? And he said, well, because the problem is there's a police force in Malindi in the north. There's a police force in Mombasa in the south and never the twain shall meet. And they couldn't decide. This poor fellow had died pretty much on the border of the two police departments and they couldn't decide between them who was going to deal with the body. And I suddenly thought, well, this is interesting because if the police force is like this in Kenya, there must be so much opportunity for crime. And am I boring you? Sorry, what? No, no. no. Right, okay. Um, Anyway, what happened was I decided to write a, a thriller based in Kenya and with a Kenyan detective with a Geordie sidekick who was basically me. So if they made the film, I would probably stand up to be to be the George Clooney sort of character. Mm. Um, and uh, it, it did very well. I got I got uh, it. It hooked the agent. It hooked Macmillan and it hooked everybody. And well, I did four four books, actually. But um, none of them sold as well as yours did, so up yours. You know, you write a book about grief and I write four books, thrillers, and, and yeah. That, that's, that's, that's writer's life, man. Anyway, enough about us. This podcast is about shining a light on unsung authors. So it's high time we introduced our very first featured writer. Who is Ruth Sutton, and she spent most of her career working in education as far afield as Canada and New Zealand. Since retiring, she successfully pursued her dream of becoming a published author. But it wasn't easy. It took her four years to write her first book. She's since written two more to add to a sprawling historical trilogy entitled Between the Mountains and the Sea, which is set in the English Lake District. Not to mention a couple of crime thrillers. So starting as we mean to go on, we caught up with Ruth in a pub beer garden where she told us all about her sometimes rocky road to publication and beyond. But first, here's Ruth herself reading an extract from A Good Liar, the first book 
in her Lakes trilogy. Barrow in Furness, Lancashire, October 1916. Jessie Thompson had been lying to her mother all her life. Even as a very young child, standing on a stool to reach the kitchen table, she'd pretended to wash her face in the big bowl, splashing the water, wiping her hands on the towel, for the sheer joy of defying her mother's expectations. As a girl growing up, she'd clung to lies to define her independence. She'd lied about Clive, too, and all the secret meetings. But now she knew the lying had to stop. All week in college, and this morning on the noisy train to Barrow, she'd known what had to happen, and she was dreading it. The ongoing character is a woman called Jessie Whelan, who we first meet in Barrow in 1916, when she's pregnant, unmarried, and in trouble. And then it, the, the story skips forward. She has the baby adopted. Well, not adopted. She gives it away. There was no adoption before 1927. So the baby disappears and we meet Jessie again 20 years on when she has established herself respectability, a job, a house in a, in a community that respects her. And uh, then, of course, the, the ongoing problem of who is, where is this child? And the book is about, the first book is basically about will this boy, now age 20, find his mother as he wishes to, having discovered that he was adopted? And what will happen when he does? That's the big question, because she's about to lose everything. And then, having established that the boy does find her by the end of the first book, then the second one is basically about his history, what happens to him, and his ongoing relationship with his mother, which is troubled. Uh, and it's setting in the pit area of Whitehaven, Kells. And um, we look at the, the, the post-war environment, 47, um, the cold, the rationing, the difficulties in the pits. And then the story skips forward to 1957, another 10-year jump, um, to the family now revolving, really, in, in work terms around Windscale. And Jessie, in doubt about what's happening at the plant, John, well-established in the same plant, um, and... The story is set in and around Windscale and Seascale during the fire of October 57. So the first one's 37, second one 47, third one 57, and those were fairly substantial years in the history of West Cumbria. The walk from the station to the terraced house in Harter Street reminded Jessie how glad she was to be away at college. It was the smell that struck her as soon as she got down from the train. A smell of smoke and soot and salt carried on the wind from the Irish Sea. Catching sight of herself in a glass shop front, Jessie saw her neat shape, crowned with a tangle of dark curls, a white blouse tucked into her long navy skirt. Well, I was a teacher and then an education advisor. And then when I was 40, I quit and went freelance as a presenter and education consultant. And for about 25 years, I worked around the world, uh, self-employed, presenting and writing, writing non-fiction education books about my work. And when I got to 60, I decided as a present to myself, I would um, take six months off and do what I'd always wanted to do, which was learn how to write a novel. And I went on a course called How to Write a Novel and uh, thought it would be easy and it was hard 
and but having got the first one out of the way, I got into it and just kept going. I assumed that it would be as easy as writing non-fiction, but it isn't. You've got to juggle different whole variety of different things: setting, character, plot, research. You've got to keep track. You've got to be concise. You've got to make it the story move on, and the first one turned into a massive sprawl. It was somewhere between Coronation Street and Anna Karenina, I think. Uh, and it, it, it just got completely out of control. I didn't know how to manage all those various elements. And it took me a lot of work and time. And I was still trying to work, uh, proper work at the time. And it was very difficult to manage it all. And I went for some professional feedback and it basically said start again after two years. So I did. Um, I needed to rein it all in, cut huge amounts of stuff out. Trying to edit retrospectively, you can take a, an incident out of chapter 23 and then you realise that everything leading up to that incident was in chapter 15. So you're trying to knit backwards. It was, it was a nightmare. Jessie pushed open the door of 23 Harter Street as quietly as she could and put her bag down in the passage. Sounds from the kitchen told her that Cora Thompson was at home, but the words Jessie needed would not come. Before she could compose herself, the kitchen door opened. Oh, it's you, Cora said to her daughter. I didn't remember you were coming home this weekend. I didn't tell you, said Jessie. Well, you're here now. I'm just on my way out to Auntie Barbara's and then the shopping, back about five. Help yourself to whatever's in the pantry, but not the ham. That's for tomorrow. And she was gone. Once I'd got the manuscript um, almost sorted, I then had to work with the people I was working with on editing and uh, typesetting and design and the little drawings that are in that book, um, which I was quite keen on, they were, but they were expensive. Um, and I had to manage all that process. Oh, the process was much more frustrating and complicated than I thought it would be. But I knew I was learning how to do it. Um, and I knew that if I wanted to keep going, the second time through would be much better, much easier, and of better quality, and it was. I think the second one of the trilogy is considerably a better book than the first, and it's, I'm still very attached to that second one. Jessie sat at the well-scrubbed kitchen table, still trying to decide what to say when her mother eventually returned. She would have to say something. Two months gone already, and soon it would start to show. It was only a few days since she'd seen the news of Clive's death, but she remembered the short notice, word for word. Cora sent the Barrow news every week, and on that sunny Sunday afternoon, Jessie had taken the paper to the seat in the garden of the college hostel in Ambleside. A headline caught her eye. Shipyard tragedy. Young man killed in fall. On Thursday afternoon, Clive Whelan, 21, unmarried, and residing at 11 Mikasa Street, Vickerstown, fell off high staging in the new airship hangar at Devonshire Dock. He struck his head on the side of the dock before falling into the water and was pulled out by others at the scene. Dr Ware's services were summoned, but he could only pronounce life extinct. The body was subsequently conveyed to the mortuary. That was the bucket list ambition to write a novel, because I'd always wanted to. And it was only getting towards the end of the novel that 
I knew that I'd learned so much about how to do it, it would be a shame not to do it, try again. And secondly, I was so attached to this woman, to Jessie by that time, that I thought, she's too good to waste this character and I'm going to push her forward and see what happens to her uh, aged 50. So then the second one came along and by that time I thought, well, we might as well make it a trilogy. Make it the best story you can. And until you've got a really great story, don't get tangled up with you know, routes to publication and agents and all that stuff. Just write and be tough with yourself about quality. She'd tried to get up, but her knees had given way. When they found her, she was still lying where she'd fallen. And now she lay on the couch in the front room, thinking about Clive and the quiet room in Mikasa Street where they'd made love. Just that one time, the thought of it burned in her mind. The cool white of his body, the sounds he made, the feeling of being possessed by him. She'd wanted him badly then, and she wanted him still, even while his child grew inside her, and she would never see him again. I thought um, what was interesting about Ruth there was that she was saying that... uh, you know, she'd been refused by agents mm. and she'd been turned down left, right and centre and yet she still had the stubbornness to carry on and I wonder whether that is kind of the key to to being a, a, an author, to, to getting your work out there, to being published. What, what do you think? Well, look, nobody becomes a writer because it's an easy path. I mean, you have to have tenacity and grit and, you know, a degree of... Uh blind stupidity I but think. why yeah I was gonna say why would anybody do it I mean if if, if all right Ruth had um she'd retired she'd obviously got some retirement money why would you then sit down and say I'm going to write a book now because it's a it's, it's a drive isn't it and I mean there's that old saying everybody has a book in them which yeah. I think everybody does I mean you know this is my interest is in life stories and life writing I think you know tr- true life stories are far more interesting than fiction personally um, but, you know, whether or not you have this, as I'd mentioned before, the tenacity, the grit to sit down and actually write it is another thing. And I think that you, that is perhaps what distinguishes write, those who write and those who don't, as well as, obviously, talent. Well, I think, yeah, I, and I do think that, the, you know, the, the secret to success is, if, if, if that is the right word, is to actually get your book published. So you talk about the importance of publication. Is, is This is what I want to know. Is a writer any less of a writer if they're not published? I mean, what does publication actually mean? Because as we both know, it's so subjective. And whether somebody, an agent or a publisher likes your book is entirely up to whose desk your manuscript ends up on. I think it, it depends on what you want out of it, really. You can write books and uh, for pleasure. You can write books for, for personal satisfaction, I guess. And there's no there's nothing wrong with that at all. But I guess if you want to make money out of it, well, that's a different matter. I was interested that uh, Ruth had decided to go down the line of, of, um, of, of making an audio book of her story, um, which costs a lot of money to do. Your book was... Uh... It was made yeah. into an audio book, wasn't it, it? It was, and it was very, very bizarre actually, because the the guy who who did my books was out of um, London's Burning, and um, when you've got the book in your head and you've written it and it's your baby, it's very, very, very strange to hear somebody else reading it and putting their own inflections on it and and their idea of how it is. And I'm not quite sure I enjoyed the experience, to be quite frank. Do you know who I'd have narrating my book? Stephen Fry. Jimmy Nail. 
Do you mean Neil? Yeah. Really? Yeah. But it's from a oh, woman. Jill, Jill Hapney. Oh, right. So you'd, you'd have a Geordie uh, voiceover. Just doing any, it. insert any Geordie. Why Why does it have to be in a Geordie voice? I wouldn't have thought that the accent or the, the whatever would make any difference whatsoever. Geography is integral to that book. Maybe I should read it. Anyway, our thanks to the indefatigable Ruth Sutton for taking the time to appear on the Unsung Book Club podcast. And if that extract has whetted your appetite for more, go to her website, ruthsutton.co.uk, where there are details of all her books and where to buy them. Right. Uh, Press that button, will you? This one? Yeah. In Hollywood, they call it the elevator pitch, It's when you just happen to meet a bloated movie exec in a lift, and assuming you don't get molested, you've got until it gets to his penthouse suite to tell him how wonderful your script is. Well, we're neither Hollywood execs, nor particularly bloated. But if you're a published author, in print, ebook, or both, then we want to hear from you. Send us an extract from your book, which you think best sums up what's great about it, and you as a writer. We also want to hear from independent publishers. If you're keen to promote an up-and-coming literary superstar, then let us know. Either way, for more details on how to get in touch, go to our website, unsungbookclub.com, and click on the submissions page. Who knows? You could be elevated to the best-selling big time. See what I did there? And now, in the section we like to call, What Are You Reading Now? Nick, what are you reading now? Have you heard of an author called C.J. Sansom? Nope. Right. C.J. Sansom um, is, is the author of a number of books involving a, uh, a sleuth from Tudor times, and he's a hunchback. And his new book's out now, and it's getting rave reviews, and it's about, I don't know, the fourth or fifth, or maybe even the sixth in the series. So I thought I'd go back to the, the source of, of this triumph, and start with C.J. Sansom's first book in the series, which is called Dissolution. So you've never read any C.J. Sansom? No, I haven't, no, no. Okay. And I, but I thought, you know, there's got to be something in this. And, um, well, do you know what? I didn't like it. Is that your critical appraisal of it? Pretty much. Uh, I mean, it, there's nothing nothing wrong with it, and clearly 10 million readers can't be wrong. But, but there's it, not much right with it. Have you ever seen a film called In the Name of the Rose? Nope. Right. Well, it's it basically it's a, it's a film in which Sean Connery, believe it or not, plays a, a medieval monk who goes and solves a mystery in a, in a monastery. And Dissolution is kind of along the same lines, but it's written in a very old-fashioned style. And to be honest with you, it, it's it's all right. It get it gets on, but it, it getteth on my wick after a while. And um, I, I didn't like it. I got about 50 pages in and I, I just couldn't read any more. And, and I'm sorry, CJ. I, I know you. the readers will prove me wrong. I just didn't like it at all. I, I don't think CJ will be losing much sleep about that critical appraisal. But anyway, thanks. I doubt it very much. Do you want to know what I'm reading? Go on then. I'm reading a book called H is for Hawk. What? H is for Hawk. Right. Well, it is. Uh, and it's by an author called Helen MacDonald, who won the uh, Samuel Johnson Prize for it in 2014. What, what's the Samuel Johnson it's Prize? It's the most prestigious non-fiction prize uh, in the UK. Mm-hmm. It's now called the Bailey Gifford Prize, actually. I note from a quick uh, a quick Google here, 2018. What? It's it's one of those books that makes me want to give up writing. It's, it's just... Uh, 
prose is beautiful. What's it about? It's about how training a goshawk helped her to overcome the sudden death of her father. Uh, and to, to kind of cope with the grief, and yeah. it's uh, it's train the goshawk to do what? Well, it's the process of the training and the juggle. I don't think you're taking this seriously, are you? <laughs> no. Bailey Gifford would have a few things to say to you. Well, the, well whoever he he or she is. Mm. Uh, so no, sorry, I, I am being flippant. But um, so you, you're enjoying the book? I am enjoying it. I was thoroughly recommend it to our listeners. Right. Who who's written it again? Helen MacDonald. Helen MacDonald. And the book is available now? Well, it's been available since 2014 when it won the Samuel Johnson Prize. All right. You're not listening, are you? No. Well, that's about it for this first edition of the Unsung Book Club. How time flies when you're having fun. Um, I assume you have been having fun. Well, we haven't fallen out yet, so uh, that's encouraging. As if we would... Not so soon after the Christmas fallout, anyway. Ooh, that was a good one. What did you get me anyway? I've forgotten. What, like you forgot mine? Uh, okay. I think we'd better get Gordon back. Good idea. See you next time. Can't wait. Ta-da, Chuck. Ta-da, Pet. You've been listening to the Unsung Book Club podcast. If you haven't already subscribed, you can do so now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you're feeling generous, why not give the show a five-star review? Not only does it make us feel good, but it really helps to spread the word. We also want to hear from you. If you're an author, a blogger, a publisher, or just a fan of the written word, you can find us on Twitter, at Unsung Book Club, and on Facebook too. And for full details about everything to do with the show, and where to find us, head for the website, unsungbookclub.com. Brownlee & Brownlee's Unsung Book Club is a Paperfoot production. Who is Gordon? He's the timpanist. Paperfoot.